listening to the Michael Anthony Bible Teaching Podcast. This episode covers the book of Acts, how Christians live. You can enjoy more messages like this with the free Courage Matters app available in your app store. If you'd like to request Michael for an interview, guest appearance, or as a keynote speaker for your event, click the invite tab on the Courage Matters app or on couragematters.com. Is your life worthy of persecution? Is your life worthy of persecution? You're thinking, oh, brother, here we go. What is he talking about? I don't like any more difficulty in my life than you do. Who wants life to be complex, conflict, hardship, difficulty? I don't like persecution and hardship any more than you do. In fact, when I go to a restaurant and the waiter or the waitress comes up to me during the meal and asks me if I'd like anything else, you can ask my family, they'll tell you it's true. I always ask for a large bowl of world peace and they have to figure out whether I'm spelling P-E-A-S or P-E-A-C-E. I'll leave that for you. The world could use a lot more of getting along together, a lot more unity, a lot more harmony, a lot more peace today than we're seeing. The only problem is that today, in this day and age in which we live, where tolerance is all the buzz, many times some of the same people who are talking about tolerance don't want to apply that to you and to me. We've become underdogs in this day and age in which we live. We've become people who are now targeted where tolerance applies to anybody and everybody as long as you don't believe in the Bible, all 66 books of the Bible, and Jesus as your Messiah and your Savior. Well, that creates a big problem for you and for me because that sets us up for what the Bible talks about, persecution. If your endeavor is to follow Jesus and to honor God, you must live a life that experiences persecution. It's inevitable. You have got to be experiencing persecution. In fact, one of the evidences of whether or not you are really following Jesus is manifest in whether or not you are really experiencing persecution. Turn with me to the book of Acts chapter eight, beginning in verse one, as we continue verse by verse through the entire book of Acts. We're going through the entire book, and this is no exception. We're picking up where we left off. And where we left off is that Stephen, this godly Christ follower, is now the first one to lose his life because he was following Jesus. Flies in the face of what we're hearing oftentimes today in the United States of America, that if I follow Jesus, everything's going to come out wonderfully at the end of my life. Well, it could actually cost you your life. That's in the Bible. If you're gonna follow Jesus, it could actually cost you your life or cost you popularity or cost you a life that would otherwise be comfortable and convenient. Persecution is supposed to be the norm, the normal Christian life. Christian living involves persecution. Well, what's happened here is that Stephen is now the first one to give his life because he's been faithful to Jesus. And we've now seen a progression through the book of Acts. If you've been following us, if you're listening on the radio, or if you're listening on the podcast, you see that there is a progression here in the book of Acts that first the disciples receive a warning. Do not speak anymore in the name of this Jesus. And then, because they don't obey, they don't obey people, they obey God, they are thrown into prison. And after they are released from prison, they are flogged. So there's a progression here. They're warned, they're thrown into prison, they're flogged, and now there is martyrdom. Somebody loses their life because they're being faithful to Jesus. And this now becomes the introduction of persecution as the new normative experience for anybody who wants to follow Jesus. There is a high price 
that must be paid if you're going to follow Jesus. And I know that's not popular in the church in the United States of America, but it is biblical, it is in the scriptures, and this is no excuse today. On the heels of Stephen being murdered, being the first to give his life because he refused to let up, he refused to sit down and to shut up when it came to Jesus, This is what we're reading in Acts chapter eight, verse one. And Saul approved of his execution. Well, who is this person, Saul? Seems to come out of nowhere. Luke, the writer of the book of Acts, the writer of the gospel of Luke, the gospel that bears his name, introduces Saul as somebody who is approving of the execution. That's another way of saying it, martyrdom, murdering Stephen. It is an execution. Saul is approving of his death. Well, who is Saul? You'll find out in chapter nine. And if you read the New Testament, you find out again and again and again, he is the author of the book of Romans, first and second Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, first and second Thessalonians, first and second Timothy, the apostle Paul, the super apostle. He ends up writing more. There's no other author who writes more books of the New Testament than the Apostle Paul. Well, before he became the Apostle Paul, he was known as Saul, who was breathing out murderous threats against those who accepted Jesus as their savior. And this is Luke introducing us to now this guy who would become a major player in the book of Acts, a major player in the body of Christ. And you and I are recipients, we're beneficiaries of this miraculous work of Almighty God to take Saul and convert him to become the mighty super apostle Paul. This is who is being introduced. Saul was approving of the murder of somebody who was following Jesus. This guy is out of his mind. He's a raving lunatic of a madman. No, he's not a raving lunatic of a madman. He's acting like that because he's blind and his heart is hardened. He's doing what anybody and everybody does when they don't know Jesus as their savior and their God. Something was blocking him. He was zealous without knowledge. He was passionate about a God he didn't even know. Bible makes it very clear. Paul ends up making it very clear in his writings that Jesus is God. The second person in the Trinity, Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. If you read all of Paul's letters, you read Paul's letters, and he talks about God the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and he's continually putting them on equal footing. Yes, you better better believe it, that it is appropriate, it is biblical, it is godly, it is historic to accept and embrace Jesus as God. It's not far enough to say that he's just the Messiah or just a prophet. He is God in the flesh. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only uniquely brought forth son, Jesus, that whoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. This guy, Saul, ends up becoming the apostle Paul. Now, if God could use this guy, God can use you. Now, before you go any further, I want you to understand how Paul had a past as this man Saul. He was in line to be the next 
president, if we want to say it this way, of the theological school of his day. He was studying under this man named Gamaliel, and Paul was going to be considered the theological expert, the the expert in the scriptures. He was going to assume the throne as the theological teacher of all the theological teachers in the nation of Israel. That's who Saul was on the road to be. A very powerful, very influential man who was blind and whose heart was hardened. You know, when my father was on his deathbed, nine days before he died, he gave his life to Christ. Nine days before he died, he gave his life to Christ. And I asked him, after asking him repeatedly, Dad, would you like to give your life to Christ over many weeks? And he always said, no, no, no. This time he answered differently. He said, I can't. Something's blocking me. And my father was no different than anybody and everybody before they come to know Jesus as their savior and their God. They cannot see the gospel of the glory of God. Their eyes are darkened. They're blind, spiritually speaking. Their heart is hardened. That's why the Bible makes it clear that you must be born again. You must be given eyesight. You must have a a new heart. Your heart must be softened. So I prayed with my father and he accepted Christ right there on his hospital bed nine days before he died. You have people in your life who do not yet know Jesus as their savior and their God. You need to see them through the lens of scripture. Their eyes are blinded. Their heart is hardened. They cannot see the light of the gospel of the glory of God. And you need to pray that God opens up their eyes, softens their hearts so that they can do what no mere mortal can do on their own. Accept Jesus, acknowledge Jesus as their savior, their God, their master, and the Lord. If all we do is see Saul as a raving madman who deserved to go into an eternity separated from God, we don't understand the compassion and the mercy of Almighty God. And I know that there are people of different persuasions. Well, you might have people in your life and you might have been tempted. You might be tempted now. You might be listening. You might be tempted now. Well, maybe God has predestined them to be damned. How dare you? How dare anybody take on the role of God? You don't know if somebody is going to be saved or lost. Your job and my job is to share the gospel, to live the gospel, to be salt and light in a distasteful dark world and leave the consequences to Almighty God. I'm confident that there were people when my father was on his deathbed that they thought he was beyond reach and probably it went through their minds, it went through my mind. How dare I, humanly speaking? Well, maybe God hasn't chosen him. How arrogant, how limiting to Almighty God, how audacious to take on the role of the Almighty and to play God. You don't know how far away or how close somebody is to God. All you know is that only God can save a soul and you might be the mouthpiece, the hands and feet of Jesus to bring somebody to the point of acknowledging Jesus as their savior. Don't play the role of God. Play the role of the human being who has been called by almighty God to partner with him to build the only kingdom that will endure forever, the kingdom of Jesus Christ. It's not your role. It's not my role to try to understand or to pretend that we understand or try to talk in strong theological terms with other people as if we understand things that we don't really understand. 
the sovereignty of God and human choice, the ability to make decisions, one day we'll finally understand that when we face God in person. But as for this side of eternity, we don't know how it all works out. All we know is that God will make it work out. And somehow, God was able to use this man named Saul, convert him. And if you read in chapter nine, as we're going to read, hold on to your seat, we'll get there. Something like scales visibly fell from his eyes when Jesus appeared to him. Visible capability, the believers there were able to see it representing the spiritual condition of his eyes. He was blinded. He was hard of heart. One of the things you might need to repent of is not caring about people who are lost all around you. You know, God had to do that in my life toward my father. Is it okay if I'm transparent for a moment? Is it okay if I'm brutally honest at the expense of you possibly thinking less of me? I really don't care. I want you to think honestly about me. There was a time when I didn't care what happened to my father. In fact, the thought of my father's demise, actually in a sick and twisted way, brought some kind of comfort to me. You know anybody who's ever felt that way? God had to do a work in my heart toward my father. And the irony of ironies is that I got the opportunity to lead my father to Christ. And the last nine days of our time together, of his life and our time together, surpassed and overcame all of the other years where we didn't have any interaction whatsoever and all of the broken years when we did have interaction, God is somehow able to restore the years that the locusts have eaten. Had a beautiful relationship with my father and was there at his side when in the wee hours of the morning he took his last breath and it was my fingers on his wrist, my fingers on his neck taking his pulse. Finally feel his last heartbeat, his last heartbeat as he went into the presence of Almighty God. How easy it is for us to dismiss the significance of other people being used by Almighty God. How easy it is for us to dismiss ourselves because of something in our past, because of who we were in our past, and to say to God, you can't use me because of this. You fill in the blank. Some of us have many blanks that we fill in and we look at other people, how God is using them, and we say, well, that must be God's special anointed and appointed for whatever it might be. The pastors, well, they're special. The elders and the deacons, well, they're special. Well, people who have a musical capability, well, they're special. And not me, I don't have anything special to offer to God. And maybe it's because of my past. That's the reason why God can't use me. Listen, stop playing the role of God in your own life. If God could use Saul and make him into Paul, God can use you, to point people to Jesus as the Savior in the same way that Saul ended up pointing people to Jesus as Paul. You don't think that Paul wasn't reminded again and again of his past? You read his letters, he talks about, I was a blasphemer and a violent man. And here's a taste of this blasphemer and this violent man who was a, a devout Jew. If a devout Jew could be a, a blasphemer and a violent man, there are many religious people. Your religion won't save you. Only Jesus will save you. If you don't know Jesus, it doesn't matter how religious you are. You can still be a blasphemer and a violent person, a murderer. And here's a sampling of how blasphemous and how violent and how distasteful and how blind and how hard-hearted Paul was before it was the mercy of Almighty God that knocked him on his bum 
literally speaking, and reached out to him and saved him just like he did for you, just like God did for you, or just like God is about to do for you if you don't yet know Jesus as your savior. In Acts chapter eight, we have a perfect glimpse of what Saul's life was like before the mercy and the grace of Almighty God. Saul was there. How twisted and sick is this? Approving of the murder of a human being. And there arose on that day a great persecution. The first time the word is used in the book of Acts, the word persecution. I'll give you a few examples of where else it's used so you get a glimpse of how it's meant and how it's applied in just a moment. But on that day, on the day that Stephen was murdered, a great persecution rose against the church in Jerusalem and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria except the apostles. Acts chapter one, verse eight. Jesus says, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. God is using persecution to accomplish his purposes. The sovereignty of God using the persecution to accomplish his purposes. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. He had letters from the Sanhedrin, letters from the Jewish leader. He was being a good Jewish man following the leaders. He had letters to do. He was authorized to do what he was doing, going from house to house as this blind, hard-hearted, far-from-God individual who thought he was being zealous for the God of Israel. And what does Jesus say to him in Acts chapter 9 when he appears to him? When he speaks to him, he says, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? It's the same word that's used here in Acts chapter 8, the same word that's used, a great persecution broke out. Saul was part of the persecution. And the reality is that he wasn't really persecuting just the church, he was persecuting Jesus. Did you understand? Do you know that to persecute the church is to persecute Jesus? Jesus says, why do you persecute me? Be really careful about criticizing somebody else's wife in front of the husband. Likewise, be really careful about criticizing some other church that was created through the same blood of Jesus that led to your salvation. We always have to be very careful and very cautious when we are providing constructive criticism about the body of Christ because when we don't provide constructive criticism and we don't evaluate, you've got to evaluate, you've got to make changes. That means you've got to call things that are wrong you got to call things out. you got to point things out. you got to make changes, but we've got to do it with humility and respect and tact because if we don't, then we cross the line and we can be persecuting none other than the Lord Jesus whose blood was shed to create the church in the first place. Saul was ravaging the church, entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison with the approval of the Sanhedrin, the leaders of the Jewish people. That's how twisted, that's how warped, that's how hard-hearted, that's how blind this guy Saul was. And this was the candidate of Almighty God to rescue. That's why it's called undeserved favor. Saul certainly did not deserve to be saved. And neither did you, and neither did I. That's why it's called undeserved 
favor. It's not what you do. It's not what I do. It's not what any of us does to get the attention of Almighty God and to be worthy of salvation. It's the undeserved favor of God that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You know, when Saul is on his donkey or his horse, on his way to persecute the church even more, he had no intention of turning to Jesus, no idea that he was far from God. That's the moment. That is the moment when the grace of God reached out to him and said, you know what? (laughs) I'm choosing you. And that began Saul's metamorphosis into becoming a mighty man of God who was continually aware of his past. One of the things I found in my life in Christ is I become more aware of my past before Christ. And you will too. That's the bad news. You become more aware if you're growing in the grace and the knowledge of Jesus, you become more aware of how you were so far from him at one point in your life. But the good news is that you become more and more appreciative of the undeserved favor, the grace of Almighty God and the mercy of Almighty God that he doesn't punish us the way we deserve, that he blesses us and he gives us a position with him and the ability to Walk in peace with him. It's a beautiful thing. Let's back it up here for a second. Saul approved of his execution. Verse one, there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. If you want to look at a few other examples here, I'll read a few of these off. You can write these down, look at these up, make a great Bible study for you. I'm going to look at a few of those in detail, but I want to read them off here. Matthew 13, verses 20 and 21 uses the word persecution, the same word. Mark chapter 4, verses 16 and 17. Mark chapter 10, verses 29 through 30. Romans chapter 8, verse 35. 2 Thessalonians 1, verses 3 and 4. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 10 and 11. I already mentioned Acts chapter 9 in verse 4, the word persecution is used again and again and again. Well, here's one of those examples. In Matthew chapter 13, the parable of the sower. Jesus says this, hear then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one, Satan, the devil, comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is what was sown along the path. As for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy, yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while. And when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the world, immediately he falls away. The word persecution is the same word that's used here, that a great persecution broke out against the church, and that became the new norm for Christ followers. Persecution became the new norm for people dedicated to following Jesus. In Mark chapter 10, verses 29 and 30, it says this, Jesus said, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last 
first. The word persecution that's used there is the same one that's used in Acts chapter eight, verse one, the great persecution that broke out against the church. Now here's what's unfortunately happened within the body of Christ, and I say it reverentially and respectfully. There are some who teach and preach what's known as the prosperity gospel, that if I follow Jesus, I'll get a bigger house, a nicer car, multiple cars, multiple houses, etc. and they will use this verse in Mark chapter 10 to justify the accumulation of material goods. Be really careful with the material goods that you accumulate because they are given to you as a steward to build up the only kingdom that will endure forever. So if you're using the material goods that God has given you, doesn't mean that you can't enjoy them, just it's the degree to which you enjoy them. And you're saying, well, to what degree should I enjoy them? If you know Jesus as your savior, you've been given the gift of the Holy Spirit, you've been given 66 books of the Bible, it is up to you to be led by the Spirit of God, to read the Bible, and to let God change you and transform you and give you wisdom, which is the application of knowledge. Wisdom is the practical application of knowledge, and God will give you wisdom and how to use the material blessings that he gives you. Because one day we're all gonna give an account before God. Some people will say, well, this is two verses here in Mark chapter 10 that justify the accumulation of houses and material goods. Well, you know what I have found to be true in my life? That you are my family. There are people here in this church who are my spiritual mother, spiritual father, and I've lost some that have gone home to be with the Lord. And I have houses that I haven't paid $1 toward in terms of a mortgage. They're your houses that you've invited us over to for fellowship and time together, time that we spend together and that we wouldn't have spent together if it was not for one simple thing, our relationship in Jesus Christ. I've been able to enjoy vacations at places by going and visiting other people that I didn't pay for that vacation house that they let me come and join them in. And if you're in Christ and you're walking with him, you know people and you have relationships and you've experienced this very truth that's in Mark chapter 10. The benefits of following Jesus by knowing his people and experiencing the good blessings that come from people from their hands, from their hard work, from their generosity that you had absolutely nothing to do with. It has everything to do with Jesus and Jesus alone. That's the reality that's spoken of here in Mark chapter 10. There's no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands, don't forget this part, with persecutions. And in the age to come, eternal life. And so with the same certainty that we have Jesus' promise about all these things in the here and now, we can bank on the promise of eternal life. And then he gives this caveat at the end, but many who are first will be last and the last First, if you take your delight in the material things that God is giving to you in your life right now and you use them only for me, myself, and I or predominantly for me, myself, and I, you might end up being last or otherwise you could be first. That's what Jesus means. This idea is presented throughout the Bible again and again and again, good, godly stewardship. Be careful 
about what you're doing with all of the things, all of the blessings that God is giving to you at your disposal. Be wise, be humble, be filled with the spirit, be filled with the word of God, make it your ambition. Be intentional about the wisdom that you develop in your life and God will give you wisdom and you will find yourself saying no to things that you otherwise could justify and yes to things that you otherwise would not justify all because you're following the leading of the Holy Spirit and you're being generous in this life with a keen eye for the life to come. Does that make sense? So what I'm saying making sense? I hope it's making sense. The word persecution also used in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, interestingly enough, written by Saul, who became the apostle Paul. This is the guy who's writing these words. Again, you don't think God can use you because of your past? You have forgotten or you don't understand that this is Saul who got saved and filled with the Spirit of God, who is now being used by the Spirit of God to benefit the Thessalonians and to benefit you and me today, 2,000 or so years after the fact. Look what he says, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. Therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring. You get the impression here that Paul understood persecution to be normal for the Christians, not abnormal. We refer today in the United States of America and other well-to-do parts of the world to the persecuted church, the persecuted church. And usually what we mean by that is maybe Christians in China where they can't worship in a public place unless it's a government-approved church that kind of a gathering, or somebody in Burma or somebody in Thailand, somebody in Pakistan or another part of the world where Christianity is not allowed to be openly practiced. You think of a country where Sharia law has been instituted there and Christians can't share their faith openly or if somebody accepts Christ as their savior, not only will the family ostracize you, but you could be executed. And this is why, might I add, this is why Sharia law better matter to you as a follower of Jesus Christ when it comes to the United States of America. There are certain instances where freedom for everybody's ideology is not a good thing. And Sharia law is one of them. You have an obligation according to Islamic law, teaching, and practice. If somebody becomes a Christian, it is an honorable thing to take their life and to do it as publicly and as knowledgeably as possible. That's what Sharia law stands for in part. I'm speaking the truth. I'm trying to do it in love. It's not loving to not speak the truth. The most loving thing you can do for somebody is to tell them the truth. The most unloving thing you can do for somebody is to withhold the truth that you know from them. But here Paul is talking about persecution. And when it comes to what we call the persecuted church, we think, well, that's somebody who's going to lose their livelihood. They could lose their job in a country where they're persecuted. They don't have the freedom that we have in the United States where our Constitution recognizes 
God-given unalienable rights. They're not given to us by the Constitution. We need to really let that sink down. They're given to us by Almighty God. Our Constitution is a beautiful thing because it recognizes God as the author of those unalienable rights. And one of those freedoms is the freedom of speech, the freedom to gather, and the freedom to worship and serve our God, the Creator God. Did you know that all 50 constitutions of the states of the United States of America reference either God or the Bible or Jesus? I bet you didn't know that in our revisionist history world. All of the state constitutions of the United States of America reference the creator or they reference God or they reference Jesus. They don't necessarily do all of those, but they make overt references to God, the Bible, Jesus so much for separation of church and state. Sounds to me like they had a deep abiding faith, of course, to differing degrees. Even right here in our midst, we have a divergence or a diversity of levels of faith and commitment to Almighty God. Let's not be so hard on the founding fathers as if they were exceptions. They were making an effort to acknowledge their creator and ours as well. But in persecuted countries, when we refer to the persecuted church, loss of livelihood, loss of job, loss of reputation, oftentimes loss of life. The fact of the matter is that there's no such thing as a persecuted church out there. If you're part of the church and you're a Christian, you're supposed to be experiencing persecution. There are going to be times in the workplace, times in your neighborhood, times in the family where you are taking a stand for Jesus based on the teachings of the Bible, the 66 books of the Bible, and people are going to look at you as if you're a nutcase for nothing other than the fact that you are being true to God and not going along with the crowd. This idea of fear pressure, doing what everyone else wants to do. You can go to a party, people can be watching things that they shouldn't be watching, doing things they shouldn't be doing. It doesn't mean you need to go along with the crowd. At the workplace, you can go to get a cup of coffee and people are there gathering and doing you know, water cooler talk and talking about things they shouldn't be talking about, gossiping and slandering and all this stuff. You have an obligation as a Christ follower to not participate in that. And that might mean it could cost you your popularity. It might mean that you walk away from that godless gossip and that slander. And as you're walking away, people make fun of you and call you a holy roller, call you a fuddy-duddy. As long as you're not looking down your nose as if you're better than them, because you're not, you are called to not participate in the sins of others. That's your calling. That's God's calling on your life. So it could cost you popularity where you're not laughing at jokes that other people are laughing at. Or you're telling people, you know, that's not appropriate. I don't think that that conduct or that comment is really appropriate. That person's not here. We shouldn't be saying that. It's important. It could cost you, and that is a form of persecution, to not be participating in the sins of other people. And today, in the United States of America, we're so concerned about a little bit of persecution, a little bit of difficulty, a little bit of pressure from people. We don't even know the first thing about persecution in the biblical sense. If we can't handle the difficulty and the hardship because we're concerned about our own reputation more than the reputation of Jesus, How do you think we're going to respond when difficulty really comes and hardship really comes? And it might cost you your job. We might be fined as a church. 
for talking about lifestyle choices, talking about gender issues, talking about, it's not traditional marriage. Can we get that clear for just a moment? It's not traditional marriage, one man, one woman for a lifetime. It's the biblical definition of marriage. And I'm sorry, but I don't have to apologize for that. I love you and I respect you if you disagree with me. I hope that you would extend the same courtesy toward me and toward all of us who share that view of what the biblical definition of marriage is. One man, one woman for one lifetime. I'm not a bigot, I'm not a hater for agreeing with God about what he teaches me in the Bible. And neither are you. And why aren't we even applauding for that? Because you should be celebrating the fact that you believe in the definition of gender, the definition of sexual identity, the definition of marriage according to what the Bible teaches. You're not a hater. You're not a bigot. In fact, you love God if you agree with him about what he teaches. And anybody and everybody who disagrees with what God teaches, they're the ones who really have the issue. Hating God, even if they're sincere. Many people can be sincerely wrong. The apostle Paul, when he was Saul, sincerely wrong. That doesn't make it excusable. Saul needed the grace of God. Anybody and everybody needs the grace of God. You can and you will be persecuted in the United States of America for no other reason than taking a stance on embracing the teachings of Jesus that are found in all 66 books of the Bible. And you need to make it your ambition to not back down. You need to make it your ambition to stand up and speak out, whether it's literally standing up and speaking out or by doing some of the things that I'm expressing to you, walking away from the godless gossip when it's taking place or inserting and injecting yourself. You know what? We shouldn't be saying that. We shouldn't be talking about that. We shouldn't be participating in this. You know, I understand everybody's got a right under the Constitution to be free to a large degree, provided that that freedom does not result in somebody else's loss of life. For example, we don't have time to go into all the examples, but I also have a right to worship and serve my creator and to agree with God about the truths that he's revealed in his word about any and every area of life. And you could be persecuted for no other reason than that, that that's what you believe. In fact, you must be persecuted. This idea that many of us have come to embrace that if I follow Jesus, everything's going to go smoothly for me is not biblical. There are instances in your life where you need to respect in a very direct way a disagreement. You need to be able to voice your disagreement in a very direct and yet respectful way. Look with me at Acts Chapter 8, we see this right here. There are times when defiant respect is appropriate. Look what it says here in verse 2, Acts chapter 8. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. It's the only time that that word lamentation is used here in the New Testament. It's the only time it's used. You say, well, why would I point out Acts chapter 8 verse 2? Because it's significant what's happening here. The Sanhedrin had a rule that if someone was stoned, you could bury them. After all, if you didn't bury a dead body, you're subjecting people to be defiled because if they touch that dead body, if they would become spiritually, ceremonially unclean. So the Sanhedrin allowed for somebody to be buried after they were stoned, but what they forbid, listen to this, they forbid anybody to lament over the stoning. Why did they do that? Here's the reasoning. 
because stoning was an Old Testament practice for God's people to demonstrate judgment over somebody when they were sinning, when they were blaspheming, when they were dishonoring Almighty God. So it's fitting if you were a Jew, how could you possibly lament over somebody who was stoned because then you would be dishonoring God because you are contradicting the decision of the Jewish leaders to put somebody to death in accordance with the Old Testament law. So what the, what the devout believers are doing, the believers in Jesus are doing, they are being defiantly respectful of God over the Sanhedrin. They were putting themselves at risk by lamenting. The word that's used here means to beat your chest and to weep loudly. They were forbidden to do that according to the Sanhedrin rule. And yet they understood that it was more important to respect and honor God than it was to even honor the people who were in leadership positions whose hearts were far from God. And there's a great lesson in it for you and for me today. There are times when defiant respect is appropriate, where we are to be defiant to a leader or the leaders because they are out of step with the leading and the prompting of the Holy Spirit. It's just that we need to be able to do it with a respect for Almighty God. The guy that they're lamenting over, who's, they're, they're beating their chests over him, they're weeping over him, Stephen, his face looked like that of an angel, the scripture says. How inappropriate it would have been for them just to bury Stephen when it was Stephen who was being obedient and God-honoring, not the Sanhedrin. It was totally fitting and totally appropriate to be lamenting the death of Stephen, the very first martyr that we're reading about today. You know, I began by asking this question, is your life worthy of persecution? Are you living the kind of life that so honors God, you don't care about the opinions of people, but in your not caring about the opinions of people, yet you still care about the condition of their soul, whether or not they're saved, what they believe about Jesus, for better or for worse. Is your life worthy of persecution because if you are really following Jesus, you must be persecuted in one way or another. It will cost you popularity. It could cost you financial income. It could cost you notoriety. It could cost you the loss of your life. It seems like a foreign reality here in the United States, but it might be coming. Is your life worthy of being persecuted? Because if your life is not experiencing, if you are not experiencing some form of persecution in your life as a follower of Jesus, it doesn't mean every waking hour of every day, but when you look back at the course of your life, when you look back at the course of the past few months, have you been standing up and speaking out about Jesus in a humbly, courageous, diplomatic, spirit-filled way? If you have, then you have been experiencing persecution. If not, you might be concerned about me, myself, and I more than the king in the kingdom. It could cost you a promotion at work. You could be overlooked. There is a price. There are multiple prices that are to be paid when you are obedient to Jesus. Is your life worthy of persecution? You know, here's another question that we're going to look at First Peter. Look with me at 1 Peter chapter 3, beginning in verse 13. Here's another question that you can ask yourself. 
how do I not give a flying rip about persecution? Interesting way to ask it, isn't it? How do I not give a flying rip about whether or not I'm persecuted? Well, the Bible has the answer for that because you will be persecuted. You must be persecuted if you're going to follow Jesus who was persecuted in the ultimate sense. Here's how. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 13. Now, who is there to harm you if you're zealous for what is good? Meaning, who cares about the human source of harm if you're ultimately your objective is to honor God. But even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason, for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. Having a good conscience so that when you're slandered, Those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame, for it is better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will than for doing evil. You know, many believers, many people have a bad case of epidermis penetratus, the ability to get underneath somebody else's skin. If you're going to be persecuted, biblically speaking, you need to be persecuted because you're being true to God. You're honoring God and you're honoring him the way it says here, with gentleness and respect. Let people revile you. Let them slander you. Let them say things about you, but let them do it for the right reason, not because your fly is down. Not because you've got something hanging out of your nose. Not because you're contentious and you're argumentative about things that really don't matter. Not because you're a control freak. Not because you're a gossip and not because you're a slanderer. Let them do it for one reason and one reason only because you are following Jesus. You are filled with the Holy Spirit and you are following God regardless of what people are doing. Let people revile you. Let people persecute you. Let people slander you. Let yourself be the kind of person who is worthy of persecution for no other reason than you are following the Lord Jesus Christ. You've been listening to the Michael Anthony Bible Teaching Podcast. If you enjoyed this message, you'll love Michael Anthony's Courage Matters Podcast, where he focuses on leadership, relationships, and world events. You can also invite Michael for an interview, guest appearance, or as a keynote speaker for your event. To learn more, visit CourageMatters.com or download the free Courage Matters app. In the meantime, keep looking up. There's no place else worth looking.